0: (laughs) Well,
1: good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Anna Jackson, and I'm the keeper of the Asian department here at the V&A, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the museum this morning for this special one-day workshop on curating Islamic collections. The idea for this day came from our deputy director, Beth McClure, who visited a number of um, museums around the country, I think about this time last year, and found colleagues saying... To her, that they were very keen to develop both expertise in curating their Islamic collections and more interesting programs that would appeal to local Muslim audiences. And Beth asked me if the Asian department would host a one day event to share experiences of cataloguing, researching and displaying Islamic collections. And I immediately asked Mariam Rosserone, my <laughs> colleague, if she would take over the organisation of this day. And in a minute, um, Mariam will talk a little bit about the day and about how it's been um, organised and framed in the way that it has. But to begin with, I thought it might be art worth asking the question, what is Islamic art? Um, because obviously it's, quite, it's defined in quite a different way than, say, Christian art or Buddhist art. If we use those terms, <coughs> we know we're talking about something that's very much... Religious, It's about something that's either venerated or used in ritual and that's not really the case when we say Islamic art. Here at the V&A we've always defined it really as art produced in countries where Islam is the dominant religion or the dominant religion of the the rulers, the religion of the rulers. And the crafts themselves may be Muslim but they may be Jews or Christians and the art created is predominantly secular rather than religious in function and content. The artistic output of the Islamic world is curated across the V&A's Asian department by curators in the Middle Eastern, South and Southeast Asian, and East Asian sections. Uh, But of course Islam extends well beyond those uh, parameters. The importance of the V&A's collections of Islamic art from the Middle East in particular lie partly in the size and the quality of the collection, but also in the early date in which the collecting process began. The V&A was the first institution in the world to form a systematic and purposeful collection of Islamic art, our 19th century founders believing that it was the key source in the reform of British design. In our early history, we would sometimes advise on acquisitions elsewhere in the country. We would certainly share our acquisitions, um, most with uh, Dublin and Edinburgh, but also with other places in the country. And In fact, in Stoke, for example, the Islamic uh, ceramics that they have there, many of them were transferred early in their history from the v and own collections. And I suppose in the 19th century this was very much a time when there was a very recognised network of national um, museums or international um, national museums of science and art. In the 20th century that really sort of ceased to be the case I suppose and collections started to grow independently. So I think um, now we just tend to not really know what's in each other's museums and perhaps we to also confess that until relatively recently we didn't know entirely what was in our own collection, because if some of us know the V if you, some of you know the V and A's history, the museum is predominantly divided up by material types, ceramics department, textile department, work department, and so on. So it's relied on the rather sporadic efforts of curators who might have an interest in mi- the Middle East, but who w- were based in a predominantly um, European-focused uh, department. And the exception, actually, to that was the South Asian collection. Um, which has always been independent, um, it's always been an Indian section or an Indian museum. Um, but the Far Eastern section, for example, the Far Eastern department wasn't created until 1970, and it wasn't until 2001, when there was a structural reform in the V&A, and and 9 curatorial departments became four much larger ones, that, uh, that the South and Southeast Asian and the East Asian collections were brought together, and for the first time, we had a Middle Eastern section. Um, and so now we have one large Asian department where we cover everything from um, Islamic Spain the Islamic North Af- Africa across to Japan. And for the first time, we have curators who specialise mm-hmm. in the arts of Iran, Turkey and the Arab lands, uh, who work together with the curators who work on our other uh, collections, particularly from South and Southeast Asia. But this process of uncovering, researching and bringing together our outstanding Middle Eastern collections is still ongoing. We haven't really quite completed that process yet. In the last decade, museums have begun to use their Islamic collections for new or more overtly expressed uh, goals. On the one hand, to present a more positive picture of the artistic and cultural output of Islamic civilization, and on the other, to attract new audiences from among local Muslim communities. Here at the V&A, our big major project has been to refurbish our Islamic gallery. The space was first created in 1952, but in 2006 it was reopened as the Jamil Gallery of Islamic Art. And this was the first of the big Islamic gallery refurbishments of recent years um, to be completed. We've seen the galleries at the Metropolitan Museum, which opened in 2011, and very recently the galleries at the Louvre, which opened last month. And the Louvre has devoted an enormous space um, to its uh, Islamic collections. And the biggest single donor um, to to enable them to create this was Prince Walid bin Talal of Saudi Arabia, who gave 17 million euro to the project. And he said very publicly that this, he did this because he felt that, and I quote, since 9 11, it is the duty of all Muslims to explain to the West what real Islam is like and how peaceful the religion is. And I think it's probably true to say that our own sponsor of our gallery, Mohammed Jamil, has very much got that at the heart of, of his desire to, to help us here at the VA. But the Louvre opening has engendered some criticism, not necessarily of the museum itself, but of wider French cultural policy. According to Mohammed Marvan, who's the writer and spokesman for the Collective Against Islamophobia, he says, quote, President Hollande sees Islam only as a cultural element <coughs> and a history, not as a real living culture in its midst. Here at the V&A, we very consciously engaged with Muslim audiences and sought to show contemporary art from the Middle East. We have the biennial um, Jamil Prize, and you'll hear, hear more about that later. And of course, at the moment, we've got the wonderful Light from the Middle East exhibition, which I hope many of you had a chance to see this morning. And that arose particularly from a joint collecting policy between the V&A and the British Museum. But while there is a widely recognised desire among many museums in the United Kingdom to use their Islamic collections in a lively and accessible way, There's also, perhaps understandably, concern about initiating projects when staff don't necessarily have a broad knowledge of Islamic art as a field of art history, or perhaps there's a worry that projects might provoke sensitivities or bring unwelcome political debate. Today we'll hear um, from colleagues around the country about how different institutions have adopted, uh, have, have worked to tackle these different issues. And our aim at this workshop really is very much to share all our experiences and have a very, hopefully lively, but very, very informal uh, discussion. And we hope this will will also today take the first steps in establishing a network of interested and like-minded colleagues around the country and perhaps also to mapping more effectively the UK's collections of Islamic art. So I hope you really enjoy the day and you find it beneficial and rewarding and that some of you are able to stay this evening for the late view tonight and share perhaps a glass of wine with us at the end of the day. So now it's my great pleasure to hand over to Simon Mellor who's the Executive Director Arts of Arts Council England who are our partners uh, for today's workshop. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Anna. Um, I'm just going to say a very few brief words. Um, You might be wondering what someone from the Arts Council is doing here, welcoming you to an event about Islamic collections at the V&A. Hopefully you all know that the Arts Council now has a national uh, development role for museums in England, which we mainly deliver through the uh, Renaissance programme that Headley so ably leads. but we recognise that we can only carry out that development role by working closely in partnership with the national museums and um, using their expertise and their capacity to help build really proper, strategic, effective relationships with our regional museums. And so today's workshop is, for us, an exemplar of what can be achieved through that partnership working. And it actually is part of an ongoing strengthening relationship between the Arts Council and the v And I'm particularly grateful to to Marian and her team for the superb work they've done today in in, in organising today's event. So I'm I'm really, am enormously grateful, thank you. Um, As I say, today's programme is an exemplar, not just of the type of partnership working that we're really keen to encourage in the future, but also I think as a powerful demonstration Of the incredible potential museums collections have in unlocking a greater understanding uh, uh, of the complexities of the world we live in today. Uh, Any of you who are involved in the recent Stories of the World project as part of London 2012 can testify to the way that young people from really a wide range of backgrounds can use museums collections to, to develop a more powerful understanding of the world that they have to navigate. And I'm hoping that today's workshop can be similarly effective in helping you navigate the deep and, let's be frank, sometimes troubled waters of Islamic collections and the role of Islam in contemporary Britain. The Jamil Gallery at the VNA and the recent Hajj exhibitions at the British Museum show what we can do in this area. But as we all know, that is just the start and that has to be just the start. I hope that all of you will leave today feeling more determined and more able to continue the work that a lot of you have already started in building sophisticated two-way two-way dialogues with your audiences and communities around both the contemporary representation of Islam in Britain today as well as Islamic collections. I know today is going to be really rich and rewarding for you, and thank you so much for attending. Thank you again to the VNA for hosting it. I hope you enjoy today. I'm afraid I can't stay with you, but I know it'll be a terrific day, so thank you very much.
3: Well, good morning everyone. I'm Mariam Rossa Owen. I'm one of the curators here in the Middle Eastern section at the VNA. Um, and it's now my turn to welcome you to the VNA and to our workshop, Curating Islamic Collections. So for this workshop to be useful and meaningful, we needed to know what regional museums in the UK wanted to get out of it. Um, and I therefore initiated a consultation process with the museums on the v regional liaison database. And my thanks to all the colleagues who sent such helpful replies to my questions and who also subsequently hosted some of my visits to um, museums in recent months. My questions were, what general or specific concerns do you have about curating or interpreting Islamic collections in your museum? Who are your key audiences? What recent projects or experiences have you had? And would you be prepared to present these at this workshop? What other issues have you had? Or what what other issues would you like to see covered? Many of the responses I received highlighted issues connected to expertise. Among them, a lack of specialist knowledge about the objects, frustrating the basic issues of provenance and attribution of objects in the collection, a lack of ability in Middle Eastern languages, the complex breadth of time and geographic range of Islamic material, a worry about not keeping up with the latest research, a lack of local centres of Islamic scholarship, and the need to work with outside specialists due to internal lack of expertise. Under the broad category of interpretation, colleagues noted the desire to promote understanding and dialogue through high-quality displays and activity, concerns about getting something wrong and causing offence to Muslim visitors because of lack of expertise, and some actual experience of this, such as um, some exhibition labels being translated into the wrong South Asian language, not the language that was spoken by the majority of the local population a concern with old and old-fashioned displays, which lack cultural context. And while it was thought that members of the public respond well to gallery talks, museum staff sometimes have little knowledge of Islam or the history of the Islamic world and are therefore not sort of prepared to answer questions. Several museums noted that they were running or planning projects to work with their local Muslim communities on displays or acquisitions. And in fact, the issue of acquisitions came up repeatedly, particularly of contemporary art, with several museums wanting to address the absence of Islamic art in their collections by forming new collections. But since historic Islamic art is now largely unaffordable for most museums, the focus has been on comparatively affordable contemporary works. This is an exciting way to engage with current realities and living cultures, but it also raises the issue of whether there is any such thing as a contemporary Islamic art something which we will discuss in our session after lunch. Regional museums that are actively collecting are keen to get a better sense of who else is collecting what in order to ensure their own collecting policies are distinctive, informed and strategic. So it would be great to hear from any of you who are actively collecting contemporary art um, and if so, to hear what you're collecting. On the other hand... The widespread lack of funding rules some museums out of the acquisition game altogether, and one response I received asked, what do you do with a dead collection, i.e. one that has no acquisitions policy for Islamic art, and therefore puts the onus on existing collections, which are largely 19th and 20th (laughs) century, and reflect a specific and often colonialist social situation in the locale at the time when the collections were formed. While all museums target audiences of broadly everyone, young people and the diverse multicultural societies of many of our region's cities emerged as the main audiences that museums are seeking to attract through working with their Islamic collections. This also revealed the wide ethnic diversity within these Muslim communities. The response from Birmingham, for example, highlighted the growing Yemeni, Somali, and Sudanese communities in the city. And as we will hear, Brighton has an active Iranian community. This belies any notion that there is a single monolithic Muslim community, and museums have a responsibility to be aware of the social and political complexities of their audiences. As well as responding to my questions, several museums expressed a wish to know if other museums were using similar models to them, Or, coincidentally, responses from different museums suggested some were working along very similar lines, but not necessarily knowing that that other places were doing similar things. So, for example, both Brighton Museum and the Potteries Museum at Stoke are planning displays in local mosques. And while the response from Birmingham museums regretted their lack of knowledge about what other Islamic collections exist within the regions, which would be helpful for developing regional loans and expertise sharing, the Potteries Museum expressed their wish to be known as a place with a collection of Islamic ceramics that could be approached for loans. So such responses not only imply a need to map the UK's collections of Islamic art in its broadest sense, but also to build a network for experience, expertise and information sharing. So from all your responses, we have constructed a programme of two broad themes. The morning session will be dedicated to collections and expertise. We will hear case studies of strategies that address the lack of expertise within an institution, including programs that are underway to build a broad base of specialists for the future. After lunch, we will discuss curatorial strategies for engaging audiences, especially in Muslim communities, and how contemporary art is being used to facilitate this kind of outreach. We will also debate what we mean by the phrase contemporary art in this context. In a sense, we seek to problematise the use of Islamic art to reach out to Muslim communities by highlighting the complexity of the issue and not to pretend that there is an easy answer or a one-size-fits-all approach to how we work with our Islamic collections. All the presentations are attended to be points of departure for a broader discussion, so we also want to hear from you. It is clear that many interesting projects have been going on across the UK for years, um, and I hope we'll be able to capture some of the details of those today. Smaller museums can often be more flexible and imaginative in what they do than um, the big nationals, so I'm sure that we at the v will also be learning from you today. In the last session of the day, we will discuss what appetite exists to take something forward from this workshop, and what form that might take. We will have three very short informal presentations. Um, They're not listed on your programmes. They'll be much less structured than the other presentations we have today. Um, And one of them was only finalised in the last 24 hours. Um, The first two presentations will outline different examples of networks that already exist that we could think about as models for Islamic art. Um, And the third will be a presentation from Sarah Philp, the Head of Programmes at the Art Fund, Um, informing us about their various current projects to support the acquisition of contemporary international art, especially by regional museums. And she can only be with us this afternoon, but I'm very grateful to her for even coming for that short time at such short notice. Questions we should be thinking about are ways of mapping what and where the regional collections of Islamic art are, Whether we should be formalising relationships through expertise sharing as well as loans of objects on short and long term bases and through touring exhibitions and the perennial problems of funding, especially in the current financial climate. We want the day to be as informal as possible with a lot of discussion um, and we will be calling on you to be active participants in our discussion sessions. Um, please also make use of the refreshment breaks, I've seen you've already started doing that, um, to meet colleagues and to network. And I've also included a list of delegates in all of your packs. So you've got everybody's names, institutions and email addresses. And in fact, it's already slightly out of date, but I'll be updating it and circulating it to you all after the workshop. Um, We also, at the end of the day, if anyone has any energy left, there are two gallery talks um, of the Jamil Gallery and the Nehru Gallery. Um, and I hope you'll all be staying for the Friday late and if you want to pick up a programme, it looks like this and it's on the table over there. So before we move to our first presentation, and I'm going on a bit, so (laughs) um, I'll just explain how we run the sessions. The chairs will introduce the speaker or speakers before their presentations, but we will hear all three presentations uh, back-to-back before we then invite the speakers to sit at the front We'll have a Q&A session targeted at their presentations first and then we'll open up into a broader discussion. So we're going to kick off today's proceedings um, with a mini keynote from Kaisra Khan, now Project Curator of the Faith and Islam Gallery at the Zayed National Museum um, in Abu Dhabi, but before that, Project Curator for the British Museum's landmark exhibition, Hajj, Journey to the Heart of Islam, which we will hear more about this afternoon. Kaisra's talk will reflect on her role as a museum professional, but also as a Muslim, as during her work on the exhibition, she had the opportunity to actually perform hajj. She describes this both as spiritual journey and exhibition research. So Kaisra's talk will also set the scene for us um, with a bit more focus. So Kaisra. Thank you,
4: Thank you very much, Miriam. I realise I have a very short amount of time here so I'm going to blast through this presentation. So this talk this morning will reflect on my role as a museum professional but also as a Muslim. Joining the British Museum from the Museum of Islamic Art in Qatar when it was still at the very early stages of research, and coming to the BM and servicing an established museum in matters of faith and Islamic art has been an exciting contrast. Earlier on this year then, the British Museum staged Hajj, Journey to the Heart of Islam, a baking exhibition which told the story of the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, the birthplace of Islam. As project curator to the British Museum's Hajj exhibition, I had the opportunity to actually perform Hajj. This was both, as Marion mentioned, a spiritual journey and exhibition research. As a result, I was able to combine professional and personal knowledge in my work on the exhibition, so I was very lucky. In very basic terms, the exhibition tried to reflect the importance of Hajj and this supremely pious act, which is both an intensely personal experience as well as a collective public act. We used a range of fascinating and beautiful objects from different public and private collections around the world, from archaeological objects to modern art, which Venetia, the lead curator, will talk about later on in more detail. Amongst the very early comments on the scope of the exhibition was that an understanding of the rituals of Hajj had the potential to be a very powerful section for respondents. The rituals of Hajj are seen as the the very essence of pilgrimage and therefore the exhibition. Visitors wanted to learn about the minutiae nearly as much as the spiritual fulfilment that is the focus of pilgrimage. So I considered my having to go on Hajj was fundamental to the success of the exhibition and early feedback from Muslims interviewed by the marketing department were, can you communicate the power, emotion and spiritual significance of such an undertaking? This was of course something we could do better if I had performed Hajj. So despite my personal intention to perform the Hajj in 2011, it was crucial I went in 2010, two years before the exhibition opened. It's often said that God himself invites the pilgrim Mm -hmm. to to go on Hajj and you could say I received my invitation early. Apart from performing the Hajj, there were very important material, uh, there was important material in the museums um, in um, and around Mecca, the Museum of the Haramain in Mecca, relating specifically to Mecca and Medina. There were also other places to visit, such as the Kiswa factory um, in Mecca and other places of Ziyarat, or visitation in and around Medina, uh, which may have been sources of material objects, if not solely useful for understanding the context and environment of Mecca and the birth of Islam. In fact, the history of Hajj has many stories, and this was a perfect chance to retell the story of the exhibition uh, now, and, and my own story in helping to curate this exhibition. So what was my Hajj story? As mentioned in 2010, I went both on Hajj in Auditor fact find, which included taking photographs, taking notes, I had a dictaphone and a flip video camera, and I was also asked to purchase modern souvenirs which would enter the British Museum's modern museum collection. I spent a lot of preparatory time thinking about how I could divide my time between worship and shopping, but also thinking about the types of objects that would be sensible to collect and might benefit our modern collection, whilst illustrating the contemporary relevance of Hajj. Pilgrims from all over the world were buying gifts, objects which would help (coughs) to maintain the level of piety in the new Hajji's future life. Some were being used whilst on Hajj, um, which would be infused with barakah, with blessings by the time they were taken home. So why collect this material? The material purchased, I hope, will build on the museum's strengths to continue to collect categories of material culture. Importantly, the museum had not previously had the opportunity to collect objects related to Hajj from Mecca and Medina, and those ones purchased by myself now represent a modern category of objects related to this ancient Muslim pilgrimage rite, demonstrating a spiritual as well as an economic significance. In terms of my other tasks, i.e. documenting the Hajj, I struggled at first with the concept of completing these tasks versus my own spirituality, but I realised soon enough that they were in fact entirely complementary. I was documenting one of the most major spiritual adventures of my own life, and this was what the exhibition was about, a story amongst those better known to us, such as those of Ibn Battuta or Malcolm X. So I took notes and used my flip phone uh, phone camera um, to film parts of outside of the haram, as well as some parts of the mo- mosque, whilst using a dictaphone to capture noises, especially during the tawaf. And of course, the avan and prayers, uh, which are all, of course, read quite beautifully. Um, taking photographs was tricky. Um, some of my better ones uh, are uh, here. Um, but perhaps um, my, the, the largest amount of time I spent was, was buying objects. Uh, which is what people tend to do outside of prayer time in Mecca anyway. Just to mention, of course I was chaperoned on my trip, and my husband became a good sounding board for the types of things I should buy, and also responsible for taking many of the photographs when I was not allowed, as a woman. So, how did it change the way we did things at the BM, and what was my personal, why was my personal reflection important to the museum? My role was really to combine the two aspects of my life, work and religion, to service this exhibition. Being able to share my experiences, understanding, knowledge and ideas was fundamental to the process and being able to express my feelings over objects, display, sensitivities and narratives was a a privilege as well as professionally stimulating. The affirmation of my faith through Hajj combined with this amazing round reading room exhibition helped me through when the mere mechanics became difficult as well as being able to go to Mecca with knowledge about its history, made me view it in an entirely different light, and a new light, and one that will never change me. if if I go back. For the museum, it gave us perspective and integrity, and I would reiterate at this point that I was never asked at any point to go on Hajj, I offered myself. Furthermore, as a museum professional, I without a doubt took an academic distance when returning from Hajj so that interpreting my experiences was always at arm's length due to the very nature of what we were trying to achieve, which was a balanced account of a faithful enterprise by a secular institution. So many were moved to tears throughout the exhibition, whilst others were able to view the exhibition in an educational light, and very impartially, Uh, very few were indeed critical, which demonstrates to me that this approach may have worked. Pilgrimage and hajj is an emotional subject for so many, just to see a simple representation of the Kaaba in an exhibition dedicated to your own faith is an incredibly powerful thing, and especially a faith which has become tarnished, let's say. Therefore, the experience of my hajj made the interpretation of the exhibition much easier, I think, as well as leading to a deeper understanding of the spiritual significance, the emotion and meaning, which finally helped to put the hajj loans into context. But it also meant that my own hajj became quite different to the other three million non-hajj that year. Um, I just want to end uh, briefly with an an interesting um, topic for perhaps further discussion. um, As to the the matter of presenting faith-based material to Muslim audiences, both in the UK and on projects such as the ones I've worked on previously, Qatar, Kuwait and now Abu Dhabi. The questions regarding challenges of presenting faith to these audiences became apparent in Hajj and will be an important and significant challenge for me in the future. Thank you.
5: Thank you very
3: much, Kaisra, and congratulations again to you and Venetia on such a wonderful exhibition which we'll hear more about later. We're not going to take um, questions for Kaisra now, but we're going to roll her in to the um, discussion at the end of the first uh, session. Um, And while Ian sets up the presentations, um, I will now introduce the first session, which will focus on collections and issues of expertise, acquisition and um, interpretation. Um, Our first two presentations are going to look at strategies for addressing (coughs) the lack of expertise And one such strategy has been to recruit outside specialists to conduct cataloguing projects on a specific area of the collection. Um, And this is something that a few museums seem to be doing. Um, In the first presentation, we're going to hear from Rebecca Bridgman. Do you want to come up, Rebecca? (laughs) Um, Rebecca spent four years at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, cataloguing their collection of Islamic ceramics um, and researching its collecting history. Uh, This was one of the great unknown collections of Islamic ceramics in the UK, and Rebecca's work has put it on the map and made it um, fully available online. Um, Rebecca has recently been appointed Curator of Islamic and South Asian Art at the Birmingham Museum, so congratulations again. Um, And her talk will also reflect on some of the issues facing her in that newly created role. Um, I know she's already making interesting discoveries in that other unknown collection.
6: OK, well, um, thanks very much, Marianne for that, pre- for that introduction and also for the opportunity to speak today. Um, as Marianne said, and is obvious from this slide, um, this presentation is going to focus on the ceramics collection at the Fitzwilliam Museum, where I worked to catalogue the material for almost four years between January 2009 and October 2012. Um, I'm then going to move on to give a brief introduction to my work in Birmingham, where just over a month ago, um, I took up the post of Curator of Islamic and South Asian Art. Um, Before I start, I'd like just to take the opportunity to explain a little bit about the title, um, why I chose Connecting Threads um, as the strapline for this talk. Um, Although I'm going to be talking about um, two um, regionally distant collections um, in different museums, I do strongly believe that collections, that those collections and others beyond can be linked through their original collectors or through the reasons for their acquisition. Um, So to begin at the Fitzwilliam Museum, um, this is their so-called Islamic Gallery, um, a collection which, as you can see from these images, is very much dominated by ceramics. Um, These are housed in the museum's original 1930s cases, uh, which, much to the frustration of some of the curators at the Fitz, unfortunately can't be removed because they form part of the structure of the listed building. Um, The display itself has, I think, um, very much little changed since it was originally laid out in the 30s. Um, And although I had the chance to tinker a bit around the edges, for example... Uh, removing some slightly dubious, probably faked material from the display and replacing them with um, objects that had been in the reserve for decades, Um, the display itself remains um, little changed. um, And its organisation is relatively old-fashioned, with objects arranged around a roughly chronological and (coughs) wear-type structure. Um, The material that's on display in the gallery... um, represents about half of the collection um, and the ceramic collection as a whole numbers around 700 objects or groups of objects. Um, So my work at the Fitzwilliam focused on creating um, the first comprehensive catalogue of that ceramic collection and as Marianne pointed out, in so doing I discovered that um, it was a collection of international importance. Um, Before I arrived at the Fitz, um, the collection was recorded with only brief entries on a database or um, with paper slips that I think were written up in the 1930s. Um, The collection was very little known to all but a handful of specialists and was largely unpublished except for a few key pieces that were published in books such as Oliver Watson's now famous Persian Lustreware. Um, the results of my cataloguing, in terms of sort of geographical attribution, are summarised in this pie chart. And as you can see, the collection is predominantly um, Iranian, um, and it also and it includes a number of um, ma- or sort of basically all the major types, with particular strength in wares, um from the Abbasid through to the Safavid periods, in Ottoman Isnik, and in Safavid blue and white. Um, And many of these objects came to the Fitzwilliam um, through bequests and gifts, along with um, a small number of purchases that were made by the museum. And the collectors who um, sold or gave their objects to the Fitzwilliam um, kind of really reiterate the importance of this collection, aside from the objects themselves. So those collectors include a man called Oscar Raphael, who was an expert on Um, Eastern art in the early 20th century, and when he died, he left his collection to the British Museum and to the Fitzwilliam. Um, Frank Brangwyn, whose collection was bought um, almost from under the noses of the V&A, where it had been on long-term loan in the 1930s, Um, to Henry Reitlinger, brother to the more famous Gerald, who left his collection to the Ashmolean. Um, So, um, initially I was brought to the Fitzwilliam, as Marianne pointed out, on a one-year contract um, funded by the Henry Reitlinger Trust, um, which is managed by the Fitzwilliam Museum itself. Um, And my role that year was to catalogue the ceramics of the Henry Reitlinger collection, um, which was left along with the the money, the trust money, um, in 19-, what came to the museum in 1991. Um, And I've just put on this slide a few um, sort of star pieces from the collection just to give you an overview. Um, So in the top left-hand corner, um, you can see um, an example from the Reitlinger collection, um, a rare example of Timurid blue and white, um, which was actually published by Gerald Reitlinger, so Henry's brother, in his 1938 article on interim period pottery. Um, So that's the first year, and after that first year, um, the Fitzwilliam were lucky enough to get some match funding for my post from another Cambridge trust fund, um, the Isaac Newton Trust, which basically covered half my wages and supplemented the now dwindling Wrightlinger um, trust money. Um, so that money enabled me to basically catalogue the rest of the collection, um, and the the rest of the objects on this slide are sort of a cross section from that collection. So on the middle top in the middle. Um, um, at the top, you can see an example of a very rare um, 9th-century ruby lustre bowl that formed part of the Oscar Raphael collection. Um, this was, in fact, excavated by the Vignier brothers in Paris, in, in the French Vignier brothers in Iran in the early 20th century. Um, on, the, on the top, at the right-hand side, is um, a very large Minai bowl from the Brangwyn collection. Um, unusual because it has a diameter of over twenty five centimeters, which for sort of regional museum collections certainly is is a pretty significant piece um, and it's also unusual in the fact that it doesn't appear to have been tampered with very much, so there's very little sign of of sort of restoration which you often see on Minai objects and then in the bottom left is um, probably the star piece of the Init collection. Um, A jug with um, silver gilt mounts that are hallmarked to London in 1592-3. to And hopefully you can just about see from the middle picture, um, there's actually two initials that are pricked out on the metal handle, um, which are ET. We've managed to trace them back to um, a woman called Elizabeth Tolemash, who was a 17th century lady um, whose father was the whipping boy of Charles I. Uh, which always causes some entertainment. Um, And then finally in the bottom right-hand corner is um, a lustreware bowl um, that mimics uh, a metal object um, dating to the early 13th century, so representing the height of lustre production just before the Mongol invasions. And this particular object is also interesting because it was given to us by the Addis family, um, and it was originally part of the famous hoard at Gurgan that was found in the 1940s and um, buried in storage jars on the shores of the Caspian Sea. Um, so um, now I'm going to just move on to tell you a little bit about how we disseminated information about the collection. Um, during my time at the Fitz, I carried out as much um, outreach work as possible, And the picture in the top left-hand corner shows me doing an object handling session with a group of teenagers. So I developed a session using sherds from the collection and whole objects um, to talk about how you catalogue a collection and how you decide, how you attribute um, different objects within that collection. Um, As a whole, the catalogue material um, was all uploaded onto the Fitzwilliams database system. Um, including full descriptions, measurements and, biography, and bibliography, um, and you can see a screenshot of um, one of those entries on the right-hand side. Um, this resource is probably the most lasting output of my work, um, along with a series of web pages on the museum website and a small number of publications either that are just out or in the pipeline. One of those publications, um, resulting from a session on light and colour at the International Congress on the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East um, at the British Museum in 2010, focused on some collaborative work I did with a colleague at Southampton University, um, a man called Graham Earle. Um, And Graham is developing a very interesting um, revolutionary mapping technique called polynomial texture mapping, or PMT. Oh, sorry, PTM, not to be confused with PMT, <laughs> um, which um, creates interactive surface maps of objects, but most importantly, it's very quick, easy, and cheap to, to, to do. Um, we worked mainly with lusterwares, whose shiny sort of surfaces that are characteristic of them are very rarely visible through a static display, so when they're in a display case, you can't tell that this is one of the most important features of lusterwares. Um, and the, so the interactive surface maps that we developed um, sort of mimic hand, how, what the effects you would see if you handled a lust object. Um, so it allows their true qualities to be shown in a virtual environment. Um, and the picture here you can see is a static screenshot of uh, one of those texture maps. But there is a, a live example on the Fitzwilliam website, and I'm happy to discuss this further um, with anybody that's interested. Um, So just on to the final section of my work at the Fitzwilliam. Um, We were able to get money for a pilot study um, to carry out a series of uh, object biographies of um, selected pieces within the collection. And the real aim of this work was to contextualise those pieces and to build narratives around the objects (coughs) that would enable museum visitors to engage more fully with the collection. And this work really grew out of gallery tours um, and lectures that I gave in which I was often asked by members of the public, well, um, who used these objects? Where do they come from? And how did they come to be in the Fitzwilliam? And the sort of um, very much aesthetic display um, that is at the Fitzwilliam didn't really answer those questions. So it got me thinking that these questions really are also at the heart of a lot of academic research. So I began to devise a methodology Um, that would investigate object biographies of Islamic pottery and which drew on archaeological research, um, art historical evidence, um, archival and historical um, documents to create rounded biographies that can form interesting and engaging narratives not only for um, members of the general public but also can be scaled up for academic audiences. Um, And this six-month project was funded by the Cambridge Humanities Research Grant Scheme, but unfortunately we weren't able to get um, any further funding to take the project to the next level, to a collection-wide level. Um, So just to give you the very briefest of insights into that project, um, on this page are a couple of, of the objects that were included in that study. Um, So, on the bottom left-hand corner, you can see an Ilkhanid lustre tile that forms part of the collection at the Fitzwilliam. Um, And my research managed to um, trace back the history of that tile. So, we were able to show that it was part of a set um, from a Shia shrine in Damhan in Iran, and that part of that same collection are now at the British Museum, um, forming part of the Godman collection. And then on the left hand side there are two um, Is- Syrian um, Iznik style tile panels dating to the 16th or 17th century. Um, and the, my research revealed their connections to William Morris. And in particular the panel on the right hand side um, are actually, were actually, was actually formerly owned by William Morris so it was part of his own personal um, Islamic art collection. Um, And the results of that kind of William Boris connection is going to be presented in a paper in New York to the College Art Association um, this coming February. Um, So just briefly sort of onto Birmingham and my initial impressions. Um, So I've just recently taken up my Renaissance-funded post um, at Birmingham Museums. And one of the main aims of that post is to map the collections at Birmingham... Um, and I've literally just begun to do that, so I do apologise for the quality of some of the images um, on this um, slide. Um, my first impressions are that the, of the collection that it's a good deal more varied than in Cambridge in terms of the range of material in the collection, but that the material is weighted towards the later periods, as Marianne has already sort of highlighted for for more regional collections. Um, Nevertheless, there are certain um, factors in common with the Fitzwilliam collection um, and probably those elsewhere. Uh, Most exciting for me uh, was that I discovered that Birmingham holds a major part of William Morris's textile collection, um, including, um, as you can see from the top left-hand image, um, an amazing 17th-century Turkish velvet with a tulip motif um, that was actually the pool or the covering um, for William Morris's coffin at his funeral. Um, other elements in the collection were, were acquired for a specific purpose. For example, the Palestinian textile collection dating to the 19th century um, that was acquired by a Birmingham man to reenact biblical scenes. <laughs> An example of that is the, is the hat that you can see um, on the top right-hand side. Um, But as at the V&A, objects in Birmingham were acquired for a specific purpose, also to provide inspiration for um, British arts and crafts. So because Birmingham was particularly famous for its metalworking, um, objects of Indian metalwork in particular were acquired to provide inspiration and examples of designs for Birmingham-based artists. And an example of that is um, the silver buckles that you can see on the bottom left-hand corner here with the kofgari and the gold thread inlay. Um, But another thing to remember about the Birmingham um, collection is that Birmingham is the largest museum's trust in the UK. So it not includes just Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, but also a whole number of other museums. So it includes the collections from... Um, what was the Science Museum in Birmingham, and it's now Think Tank. Um, and they have a, an amazing collection of um, arms and armour, um, as I discovered only a couple of weeks ago. Um, and this is just a drawer um, of um, part of that collection um, with a number of swords from the 18th and 19th century. But interestingly, the sword um, at the back of the drawer, so um, this sword here, is, uh, was actually... Um, made in Birmingham. It has a Birmingham hallmark on it so it's presumably mimicking a Turkish um, sword um, by by a metal worker (laughs) in Birmingham. Um, There is also a collection of ceramics, um, predominantly Safavid and Ottoman types, um, including this tile panel, um, which you can see on the right hand side, which is on display in the gallery. So that tile panel that I showed in the last slide um, was just one object that was selected by a group of uh, people from Muslim communities in Birmingham as part of a trail to explore um, Islamic cultures, um, a project that was led by my colleague Zelina Garland in 2007 to 2008. Um, And the trail was part of um, the final stage, sorry, of a programme called Art and Islam, um, which used Birmingham Museum's permanent collections and brought contemporary artists, contemporary Birmingham artists into the museum. Um, both the trail and um, the exhibition were funded by Renaissance in the Regions and the Arts Council. Um, and prior to that, um, a, series of, um, a series of Heritage Lottery-funded um, exhibitions entitled Illuminating Faith, which you can see a postcard in the middle there, um, also focused on Islamic art using collections from Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery and Birmingham University, <coughs> particularly their so called Mingana collection of manuscripts from the Middle East and Asia. Um, so these projects are very much representative um, of the ethos of Birmingham Museums um, and their ongoing drive to prioritise community engagement. Um, with the aim of diversifying audiences and connecting with the population of the city, which is one of the most eth- ethnically diverse in Europe, um, that provides me just to give one um, final um, plug slightly outside of the remit of Islamic art, but i couldn't resist the opportunity um, to say that um, we're going to be we're working with the British Museum and our Sikh community partners to have an exhibition of the Sikh Fortress Turban that's coming to Birmingham at the end of January to April. The display is going to include the Fortress Turban but also objects from Birmingham's permanent collections. And um, we're also um, planning another exhibition at the end of 2013, which will be worked on by myself and Josephine Frank, our (coughs) British Museum trainee curator, who will be joining the team at Birmingham um, from the start of next year. Um, And I believe that's the subject of the next talk. So thank you very much for your attention.
3: Um, Thank you very much, Rebecca, um, for leading so seamlessly into our next presentation. Um, We're going to please make a note of your questions. We're going to have all the questions at the end of the presentations. Um, So I'm now going to introduce the next uh, presentation which I think it should be here, um, which looks at strategies for addressing the lack of expertise by thinking about skills and training to build expertise for the future. Um, So this presentation focuses on the British Museum's Future Curators Programme, funded by HLF Skills for the Future. Um, And we'll hear first from Maria Boyanowska, um, who's the Knowledge Share Manager at the British Museum who coordinates the programme. Maria will give an overview of the programme, and then Josephine Frank, who, as we heard, is the trainee curator in Islamic art and culture, um, will talk about her experiences so far. And um, as Rebecca has already said, um, Josephine is nearing the completion of her six months at the V&A. Uh, sorry, at the British Museum, um, and will then be moving to Birmingham. So, Maria.
7: Thank you um, for inviting us here today and before Josephine speaks about her experience as the Islamic art and culture trainee, Mariam thought that it might be useful for me to give a little bit of a context of the Future Curators programme. So Josephine is one of five trainees part of the second intake of the Future Curators programme which was developed in response to a concern voiced across the sector of a lack of specialist expertise and loss of specialist expertise in an increase of orphaned collections. The programme is funded generously by the HLF Skills for the Future programme, which aims to meet identified skill shortages in the heritage sector. The British Museum saw this funding as an opportunity to support the training of a group of individuals to develop their knowledge and skills to research and help realise the potential of subject specialist collections across the UK, whilst also building closer links between the partner museums and the British Museum curatorial departments. Each trainee on the Future Creators programme is selected for their passion for museums and commitment to a relevant subject specialism. They all spend six months at the British Museum, training in the specialist curatorial department, and then move on to one of five partner museums Last year, let me show you where they all went. (laughs) (laughs) Trainees um, specialized in historic world cultures with a focus on oceanic collections. So here's a few of our trainees for you. Um, Asian coins within the numismatic collections, (laughs) ancient Greek collections, ancient Egyptian collections, And Anglo-Saxon collections, and unsurprisingly going on to Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, of course, with the Staffordshire Hoard. And this year, trainees have been specialising in late medieval, medieval Europe, Chinese and Japanese ceramics, ethnographic collections, again with a focus on Oceania, ancient Egyptian collections, but this time focusing on Sudanese objects, and of course, finally, Islamic art and culture. As Josephine will discuss further, um, the learning framework for each trainee breaks their training into modules to support a broad set of curatorial skills to complement their subject specialism. A very important element of the programme is to ensure that the trainees are highly employable, and have the necessary transferable skills to be a museum professional in these demanding times.
8: Oh, my final slide seems to have disappeared. <laughs>
7: That's all right. It might, be, it might be right at the end, yeah. Um, the programme has already evidenced real impact at partner museums with long-term legacies for the specialist collections. Projects saw collections catalogued, displayed storage reorganised and research (coughs) undertaken. The trainees have gone on roles, gone on to roles, either in or connected to the museum sector, their knowledge and skills being put to very good use. This year, the Islamic art and culture focus at Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery was in response to an ambition of the museum to better represent their local community in the collections on display. Josephine, working with, of course... Rebecca, was she? <laughs> Rebecca, um, the recently appointed Curator of Islamic and South Asian Art, have an exciting task to present this collection to the public. We hope that the partnership with the British Museum will have a continued part to play in this development, and we look forward to the outcomes of this work. Looking to the future of the programme... We have funding to support a third intake of trainees and we are planning to increase the impact of these brilliantly talented individuals by broadening the partnership to include smaller museums in each partner region. This we hope will not only have a positive impact on the knowledge and engagement of the collections at these institutions but will also give the trainees the valuable expertise of working in smaller scale museums. We are yet to confirm the specialist subject areas for the coming year, and we are being led by our partner museums to identify the collections, collection areas that are most in need of support. And of course, if you'd like to ask me any questions about the programme, my details will be on the final slide, but I'll pass over now to Josephine to talk a little bit more about her experience. Thank you.
9: Um, welcome, good morning. Um, after Maria talked about the Future Creators program in general, I like now to report on my experience with the program. My name is Josephine and I'm one of the five lucky trainees uh, who got offered in placement on this on this year's schemes out of 1,533 applicants. <laughs> uh, lucky a real lucky one. Um, <laughs> I did an undergrad in cultural anthropology and the study of religions at a German university focusing on Islamic art and culture. Last year I came to London in order to study Islamic art history at the School of Oriental and African Studies. All growing up, I loved to discover new things and enjoyed visiting all kinds of museum and galleries with my father, while my mother and my little brother uh, just walked from couch to couch asking desperately when we will m- leave the museum. Um, I consider myself as an object-focused person but unfortunately in the 1990s when I grew up only few museums had hands-on activities for children and I always hated the fact that I wasn't allowed to touch the objects. So when I started working with collections, first in a volunteering position, then later at university and during uh, student placements at uh, museums in Germany, I loved getting first-hand access, taking objects off display and look at them closely and and, um, feel the surface. Um, so when I saw the Future Creator advertisement on my Twitter feed ten months ago, I got really excited and was over the moon when I finally got the offer. A dream literally came true. So what did I do in the last five and a half months working with the Islamic Collection of Iran, Central and South Asia under the supervision of uh, Ladan Akbarnia? Well, I was involved in several projects. The uh, project's documentation is probably the one I spent the most time um, on. Uh, I focused on updating, improving, and enhancing object records on the internal database of the British Museum, which later l- leads is published on the Collection Online database on the General British Museum website. I focused on Iranian ceramics with uh, lustre decoration. So, for example. Uh, tiles from the Imam Sadi Yahya shrine in Veramin or luster bells, uh, which are on display in the artist's gallery. Um, I work closely with my supervisor, Ladan in order to add information in a consistent format, um, which is part of a bigger bro- uh, project, of, as the mentioned uh, online collection database, which focuses on improving the quality and consistency and indexing of the records. So I'm proud to have like a little part of this for future research projects because all of you, I highly recommend to have a look on the uh, BM website to discover different uh, the objects we hold. Uh, but I not only worked with uh, ceramics, I worked with different materials. Um, for example, glass works on paper. And textiles. Um, that's a photo of me sewing on a label uh, on a Palestinian costume. Um, but I also um, learned how to roll shawls and carpets for storage in the um, BM's textile um, store. Uh, we have sessions on collection care and store management, um, learning about best practice in storerooms which also include integrated pest management training. So identifying bugs and all these lovely things you don't want to have in your store. Um, one of the big projects at the end of August, I was involved is the rehousing of the Islamic glass collection. So I, um, with our lovely museum assistants, um, made cutouts and uh, a coex box. That's the your right hand side picture to um, house the uh, amazing glass collection for the next 10-15 hundred years. <laughs> um, I also was involved in packing and installing objects for loans and that's the example of uh, when I was curating with our, one of our MA's uh, objects on loan to the British Library's Mogul uh, exhibition. And you can see our really famous Jade Terrapin. Uh, condition checked and then packed in a uh, crate loaded onto a truck up the road and now on display in the lovely exhibition in the British Library. Um, I also try to familiarize myself with daily curatorial duties which at a national museum includes answering inquiries and thus this is an example of an email Uh, Of somebody who asked for uh, help in identifying this tukwa, and I could help them and um, say that it's uh, the tukwa of the Sultan Abdul Mejid. Um, I also, one of my first tasks was writing labels for temporary displays in the Addis (coughs) Gallery. At the moment, we are showing um, an exhibition called Fair Play, celebrating sports in Islamic art during this Olympic year. And that was one of my first tasks. And if you come with me to these, uh, this gallery, I always will point out which labels are mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of them. <laughs> um, other training sessions included mount making and pinning objects. So that's me using the bandsaw and filing the Perspect uh, mount and pinning a kunai form tablet onto a slope. And last but not least, I. Oh! we also had uh, training sessions on visitor research so I did visitor tracking that uh, you can see two maps I did and questionnaires in the uh, about to be refurbished ancient Cyprus gallery in the British uh, museum and now last but not least <laughs> I was involved in a community evening view of the just ended special exhibition on Shakespeare um, and the, this took place on uh, the 6th of October this year and there was um, an art collective called Praising Bunch and uh, have been working with three local community groups over the time of August and September to create a short performance inspired by Shakespeare and on the top right photo you see me in the warming up with the uh, community, um, with the participants and the other uh, pictures show the art banner which was made, or oh, exploring Shakespeare's London and past and present, created in partnership partnership with the Mary Ward Centre and the Bangladeshi community in Camden. And I think we will meet them again this afternoon because they did amazing work during Hatch as well. Um, I'd like, I'm really grateful for all the skilled um, colleagues at the British Museum who generously shared their expertise and knowledge with me and the other four trainees. <coughs> and supported our practical initiation into through the museum sector. And I feel well prepared now to move on to Birmingham Museum after the, the Christmas holidays and in the new year. And that's our uh, Maria's contact details.
3: <laughs> that's great. Thank you very much. That was great. Um, so our last presentation um, is going to shift the discussion towards display. Um, and specifically to the case study of the World Stories Young Voices Gallery project at Brighton Museum and Art Gallery, which opened in June this year. Uh, This presents an interesting case study of what a small museum can do without having an in-house specialist in Islamic art, um, with limited resources um, and an interesting but not universal collection. And rather than taking a generic approach to Islamic culture... Brighton chose to focus on Iranian art, building on the existing strengths of their collection. Interestingly, they also undertook a programme of acquiring contemporary art by Iranian artists uh, to open a dialogue with the historic collections. And they worked on these acquisitions and displays in partnership with a local Iranian group. So we'll hear first from Harriet Hughes, who's the curator of world art for the Royal Pavilion and Museums Brighton. Um, and then from Neda Kahoke, I hope that's the right pronunciation, sorry, um, one of the young Iranians who worked on this gallery project. So, Harriet, please. <coughs>
10: um, okay, a new display opened at Brighton Museum and Art Gallery in June this year. Um, and this display explores the art of writing historically in the pre- and in the present and how traditional practice is reworked by artists working in new media. This was produced um, in the context of a permanent um, gallery titled World Stories Young Voices as part of the Cultural Olympiad and as such its target audience is young people aged 14 to 25. An aim of the gallery project was to work collaboratively with young people in creating interpretation for the gallery. There were two elements to the project, the collections research and development and the outreach and creative engagement work. I will focus broadly on the collections development side but highlight where engagement became part of the collections development process where responses to contemporary works and knowledge of contemporary life for young people was brought into play into how a work was read and as such forms um, part of the body of information collected around an artwork. Many of the young people we worked with were highly educated with university degrees, so came with an understanding of Iranian heritage as part of their lived experience as well as an interest in the dynamic contemporary artistic production in Iran. <coughs> Whilst there was a small temporary display on an is- Islamic art in 2006, up until um, that point there'd been no... Um, permanent representation of Islamic art at Brighton Museum as far as is possible to tell from the historic record. Following the removal of this display I received feedback on the disappointment that the only reference to Islamic culture at the museum had been taken away. This combined with the existence of a growing Islamic community in Brighton gave weight to the inclusion of a story which focused on Islamic culture as part of a long list to be selected from for the new gallery. Islamic material in the historic collections ranges in date from the 14th century to the 19th century. There's clothing from Morocco and Tunisia, Kabyli pottery and jewellery, swords from India, items from the Middle East such as armour, daggers, writing tools, lighting and smoking equipment, and material from sub-Saharan Africa such as Quranic writing boards and amulets. As such, a material represents local and distinctive cultural practices and expressions of the Islamic faith in different times and places, making the exhibition of a display with these collections on Islamic art um, as a um, cohesive concept problematic. The decision was made to focus on Iran since there was a small but strong body of material from Iran. Objects in the world art collection included intricately carved spoons for serving sherbet and pickles from Aberdeen and an alms bowl. In the decorative art collection there are tiles made in Kashan dating from the 14th century including a brown and cobalt blue frieze tile um, with part of a Quranic inscription um, incorporated. Calligraphy was an obvious starting point as a theme for the display because many of our objects were adorned with a written word. And then in this sense, the subject of the display was informed by the content of the collections, um, which could be seen as both limitations and strengths. We decided to ask um, young Iranians living in Brighton to be involved with creating interpretation for the display. It took longer than expected to build up the relationship um, since the community is not as cohesive as other groups in the city. We contacted Sarah and Mahmoud Mazdak, who run the Iranian Community Centre. They coordinated bringing a group of young people from their community who responded to historic objects and advised on selecting um, a work by one of the artists, um, Golnas Fatih. We then worked with a group of <coughs> a different group of young Iranians from the International Student Group at the University of Brighton, Whilst we originally intended to involve the young Iranians in the selection of all the artworks, the length of time needed to consolidate this re- re- um, relationship um, within the timescale needed to purchase the, the um, <coughs> artworks made this unfeasible. Engagement work was underpinned by objects of research, generated by museum rec- records and access to previous research on the, the collection, and by consultation with specialists in is- Islamic arts. Um, in museums in the UK. A historical research was also commissioned to undertake some research into the object's provenance. We then gave the different sections of the community access to the historic objects. I think this is a powerful way of consolidating a relationship with the community. Both older and younger members of the community were incredibly p- proud that their cultural heritage would be going on display. Young people provided their own responses to the objects which woven into this Displays included in the object label and object label sound as, as AV. I think this has been very effective means of providing um, first person responses to objects, which was lacking in the previous gallery. Neda, who is going to talk after me, translated the inscription on the callig- calligrapher's pen box, and this can be listened to via a QR code in the gallery. Alongside the historic writing equipment, we also included some contemporary reed pens and a box donated by Mr Shapuri, a member of the local community who practised calligraphy. I think their inclusion contextualises the historic material well, but also testifies to the continued importance of calligraphy as a practice skill learned over time, which coexists with different art practices in Iran. Um, the inclusion of contemporary art in the new gallery was intended to reflect social and cultural change, as well as to address the lack of collecting over the last 50 years, but as also as a way to cr- critique the colonial project. And the, pres- um, and the presence of such collections in the UK, there's de- currently a wealth of material being produced of fine art in, being produced in Iran from fine art, which sits within an international art market to traditional calligraphy and an exciting and innovative contemporary graphic scene. We discussed the merits of collecting across these different areas as a way of reflecting the dynamic and diverse creativity at work in Iran. In the end, we chose to collect works by three contemporary artists or photographers rather than collect across different mediums so as to keep the message of the display clear. I do from um, expertise for, with colleagues in museums in the UK when drawing up um, creating a long list of artists. Um, we also um, we also do from the advice and expertise <coughs> of fast Farshad at Candlestar, um, which is a cultural... Con- um, agency based in London that represents um, Iranian artists. A team of us made the final selection following this consultation, including a curator with expertise in contemporary fine art. Whilst budget was a determining factor in selecting a short list of artists, it was both a profile of the artist and the individual works, um, the strength of the individual works themselves which informed the selection. Um, so I'll just go through uh, some of the three items that we selected. Um, Golnas Fatih is a successful mid-career artist and as such makes a solid basis for the beginning of a contemporary Iranian collection. Golnas um, Fatih, changed as a calligrapher, gained a diploma of Iranian calligraphy from the Iranian Society of Calligraphy in Tehran, She chose to abandon the rules of calligraphy to fulfil her career as an artist introducing bold swatches of colour, the rhythm of her training inscribed on her mind. What appears to be calligraphy is abstract form and cannot be read. The first group from the Iranian Community Centre said that this work diverged too far from traditional calligraphic practice. The group from Brighton University, however, appreciated this divergence two of the young people recorded their responses to the work, which by scanning QR codes um, can be heard in the gallery. One of the young people commented on how she was reminded of looking at walls and graffiti in Tehran, which is um, scrubbed out and then written over, or that it was like a secret code that cannot quite be read. (coughs) However, Sarah from the Iranian Community Centre, who is not a young person, felt that the abstract forms evoked Arabic lettering rather than Farsi, and she found this difficult because of the greater affinity she felt with Persian as opposed to Arabic. Um, Tiruf Khan, Sade Tiraf Khan, is an artist um, interested in in Persian culture, and he uses his knowledge um, to uh, explore his Persian identity Um, here is alluding to a carpet as an emblem of Persian culture, diversity and continuity. There are hundreds of individual... Oh, it's quite hard to see from the image there, but there are hundreds of individual portraits um, that have been woven together, which may be a comment on population growth in Iran. The young people related to the image as a football stadium, to which only men are allowed to go to in Iran, but they also noted there were women in the centre of the image... Um, uh, yeah, They also remarked that they could see no older people in the image, as 60 to 70% of the population are under 30. Whilst Tiraf Khan himself does not allude to any political symbolism in his work, Sarah related to the image as people who were framed or trapped within a border. She saw them as innocent faces who have been killed or imprisoned during a revolution. We used one of the young people's comments alongside a statement from <laughs> Tiraf Khan on the work in the object label. <clears throat> we selected this print by um, Nader Davudi um, because of the obvious laying of layering of script with a strong contemporary image of a woman. Davudi is an award-winning win- photojournalist and filmmaker who has documented Iranian social life over the last two decades. The young people loved this image because of the positive representation of a woman. They talked about the letters being upside down and the contrast between the age of the writing and um, the contemporary image of the woman. They identified Arabic names making it date from the writing date from after the incorporation of Islam and a description of a story about a king falling in love with a woman. Persian culture is steeped in storytelling and poetry, and young people related to this and how these stories continue to have relevance to people today. The female students love the fact that the woman wasn't covered, um, and this image would not be allowed to, or whilst it was made in Iran, it could not be shown in Iran. Um, so to summarize, the responses to historical and contemporary artworks shows how even within a small community, um, views and identity are not necessarily homogenous. The first group of young people from the Iranian Community Centre preferred the older historic pieces since they felt they better represented their heritage, whereas the group from Brighton University preferred works which moved beyond traditional practice. It also showed how the historical collection and contemporary works can elicit conversation and... Um, and dialogue, but also how political and social readings may be embedded in artworks that are not immediately obvious to the Western viewer. We plan to add to the collection through seeking funding, in part due to need to to rotate, um, as two of those works are digital prints, um, so they need to be rotated for conservation reasons, but also to support the dynamic artistic production in Iran today. The project raises questions about the categorisation of objects. We accession the new artworks as world art, but they could equally sit within the fine art collection. It also raises questions about the merits of displaying ethnographic material alongside fine art. I do think that the juxtaposition of historic material with the contemporary allows for a more nuanced representation of Islamic culture and also allows for different voices to be, personal voices to be incorporated in display, challenging an imposed notion of um, homogenous Islamic culture. Um, And now Neda's just going to say a few words.
11: Thank you, Harriet. I moved to the UK in 2010 to complete my, my Master's in Interior and Special Design at Chelsea College of Art. When I arrived, I was impressed by the attention given to the contemporary British art as well as international art. It is something that is lacking in Iran. Therefore, I was happy to contribute to Iranian project at Brighton Museum as it raises the profile of Iranian art. I work on the World Stories Iranian project at Brighton Museum. I discussed the artwork and created object labels without necessarily focusing on the historical and technical aspects of the artworks. Instead, I tried to relate to the object as an Iranian and convey my personal observation and emotions. The calligraphy box particularly stood out for me due to its aesthetic and beautiful poetry. So I translated the poem and recorded a reciting of the poem in Persian and English. In the group of Iranian at Brighton Museum, we liked some of the pieces more as they were not allowed to be displayed in Iran, like the Buddhist pieces. I particularly enjoyed and gained a lot from running the workshops which included teaching calligraphy and making badges with the calligraphy design chosen by the audience. Around 65 percent of population in Iran are under 30 years old. There are plenty of talented Iranian artists who are well known to a small artistic circle within Iran and unknown to the rest of the world. As an Iranian, I feel importance to support these artists. Another advantage of displaying Iranian art, Iranian contemporary art, is that it challenges preconception about the Middle East, which is dominated by references to war and conflict. Middle Eastern audience appreciate contemporary art by drawing from a cultural context that has influenced that art. For this art to have the same effect on a non-Middle Eastern an audience, displaying traditional art alongside the contemporary pieces can be helpful to contextualize it. Iranian contemporary artists have been forced to be innovative due to the restriction and censorship. They also have inherited an artistic history which has been influenced by the pre-Islamic as well as Islamic period. I think it is very exciting that the international art market is beginning to take an interest in the Middle East. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you, all of our speakers. Neda, don't sit down, because I'm going to invite all the speakers to come up to the front. Um, So while you just take your
4: seats, we'll have a moment... It was a really interesting exercise actually, the um, thinking about uh, what was relevant to our collection, um, based on the fact that a lot of the material there now unfortunately is produced in India, produced in China, the kind of generic souvenirs you you find in these types of places. Um, the interesting thing though I think for Hajj is that people do still save their lives, to save their money over their lives to be there. It's still a very unique experience for a lot of people. So those pilgrims from Africa, from a subcontinent, from as far as China, will pick up those items and they will have spiritual significance. So one of the ways I learned to um, identify the right pieces was actually to go around stalking pilgrims. <laughs> um, and I would often kind of follow an African family <coughs> or an African pilgrim and see what they were buying in the markets. And actually, it's very interesting. They were buying uh, objects for their children, uh, gifts to take home but obvi- obvious symbols of their trip also so Zamzam containers in bright gold plastic um, but which have a significance because of the fact that they're bought there but are worn with pride also so, um, so those types of objects I bought um, and it came back into the collection I, I bought other things such as um, prayer beads, uh, prayer carpets, the kinds of obvious things um, and some of those things are available around the world, but the majority of them are very significant to that place. Yet produced in certain um, areas of production, so um, a very um, in terms of being able to balance spirituality and shopping, <laughs> um, it's an age-old tradition in Mecca, and, and actually shopping and trading and the economics of Hajj is very important. Um, there's a hadith to say that there's blessings in buying in Medina because it encourages trade in the Prophet city. Mm. Um, so there's always this element of balance, and people have done that across the ages. There's some wonderful um, stories and um, uh, uh, passages you can read about uh, traditional shopping that go as far back as our uh, very early travellers. So yes. I was just one of those very many people. <laughs> so do anyone ask have any questions for Kaisra? I think this trading pattern exists in all the um, shrine cities. I mean, you have that in Mashhad, and you have that in Kerala and Najaf. And a lot of people profit, as you say, through the trade, and it is encouraged to do that. So that's, is, there is no discrepancy. No, no, I assume not. And actually the interesting, um, interesting statistic is that 7% of Saudi Arabia's GDP is on Hajj, and part of that is souvenirs. Mm-hmm. and. And trading um, and again you do get those, um, there's the various different levels of uh, shopping there but some mm-hmm. of the traders are coming from abroad yeah, to be able to finance their pilgrimage yeah. so it's a very interesting market.
12: Um, it, it also is uh, the same all religions that have a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Lourdes or Rome or say the main Jap- uh, <coughs> Buddhist temple in Tokyo, the you now that's got oh, a very complex set of streets in front of it for shopping. So it's not it's not
5: Islamic specific. No. No. Did you actually talk to any of the pe- people you were stalking to <laughs> find out what D- they were buying? And, I mean, who they were buying it for, or um, whether it was for themselves the souvenirs, or whether they were buying
3: for
4: family members back at home? Or yeah, no, certainly, certainly the group that I went with, um, we had to share rooms, um, so I often found my uh, fellow pilgrims coming in with extra suitcases <laughs> <laughs> uh, to hold their. Uh, new collections of items, and though they, they were predominantly for friends and family, again, on virtue of being bought in Mecca and Medina, they had a special value. Um, and some items bought for oneself to be able to, again, promote that level of piety in your life going forward. So, um, clo- uh, clothing, headscarves, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but on the majority of it, I mean, you'd even find items such as um, shrouds being bought, um, sometimes as gifts, sometimes to give to charity a lot of the people being buried in Mecca don't get buried in anything other than their own garments and shrouds, so often they were bought, sometimes for the people in the the locality, but often to take home. Um, But an interesting, again, they weren't of great value and sometimes quite tacky, often quite tacky, uh, but they were being bought in huge suitcases and suitcases were multiplying Mm -hmm. um, as we went along the trip, so obviously still important for people.
3: I wonder if I could ask Rebecca a question. Um, I've I've got questions for you all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just if you could say something about where the Fitzwilliam sort of impetus came from for wanting to catalogue that collection. I mean, the the gift that you started off cataloguing was given in the 90s, (coughs) um, and yet it seemed like there was a long period of time before anybody was hired to work on that collection. I mean, you talked a little bit about the difficulty in... Raising continued funding to do the work that you needed to do. Maybe you could say a bit more about that as well. And just wondering now what is happening to that collection now that you're no longer at the
6: Fitzwilliam and what the legacy is of the work that you've done there. Um, well, I guess the sort of the Fitzwilliam recognised for a long time that their kind of Islamic art collection had been um, sort of overlooked because the, the department has, um, the applied art department has two. Um, a, key, a keeper and an assistant keeper who are traditionally one deals with or- the Orient and the other deals with the West. <laughs> um, and the person who'd been dealing with the, the Oriental keeper had o- often been interested in China rather than the Islamic world, which was kind of, so the Islamic world kind of fell between, or the Islamic art objects fell between two sort of areas of expertise. Um, so they, you know, they had for a long time thought that they would like to get somebody in to begin work on that collection. It was just finding the funds to do that, really, which was problematic. I mean, I think Cambridge is in a very privileged position and there, there are a lot of um, sort of trust funds and sort of money scrawled away in various colleges that you can apply for um, to do sort of research on collections, which, you know, are not necessarily um, available elsewhere. No. Um, but, I mean, even so, you know, we struggled to find money to sort of retain my post and to to, to complete the work on the collection, really. Um, but I think this, in terms of the legacy that we have is the, the website. So if anybody needs to know anything about Islamic pottery, hopefully, you know, I'm sure there are a, a few errors here and there. Um, Jenny Wright, who's in the audience, worked with me over the summer and was great at proofreading some of the entries. Um, She did a fantastic job um, and cataloguing some of the sherds. So, I mean, that's the main output of the project, hopefully, that will be a resource that people can use um, in terms of identifying their own material, finding bibliography about, um, you know, Islamic ceramics. Um, And we also have the work that we did with the polynomial texture mapping Um, so the interactive surface maps, and that, in fact, has... um, I showed it to um, staff at the Louvre, and um, they were so impressed that I I believe it's now... uh, There's an interactive display which includes those kind of maps as part of their new displays in the gallery at the Louvre, so... Um, you know there are certainly yeah. sort of legacies. But do you think
3: the Fitzwilliam will ever consider hiring um, a
6: curator to specialise in this area? I, there's not the funds to do so. Basically, um, there's the you know the two permanent posts within the department, and you know even then when somebody leaves, they have to justify that position. You know the con- the continuation <coughs> of that position. So um, although they would, I think they you know they would very much like to get. A third curator in to deal with the Islamic world—that at the moment, that's just not a realistic um, sort of opportunity.
3: Comment or question over here? I just really wanted to say, um, Rachel Sinfield, head of education at the Fitzwilliam oh. Museum, um, our lost Birmingham's game, so <laughs> lucky Birmingham. Um, but actually, being invited to be here—and I bring apologies from the keeper of applied arts, Vicki Avery—but um, being part of this network, I hope will raise the status of this collection within our collection and there surely must be an argument to appoint the kind of keeper that we need to have. Thank you. So thank you for is there, there's a question?
13: Is, is there um research and teaching around um Islamic history and culture in the university mm. itself as distinct from the museum and yeah. what is the
12: interaction and is that not a way of getting
13: expertise? Them, even if there might not be necessarily a curator, but it seems to be within the
6: university context. Yeah. I mean, um, the Fitzwilliam is the University Museum of Cambridge, so there's a very strong link, obviously, between the university and the museum. Um, the the um, History of Arts department um, is very Western-focused, so there is very little... Um, there's very little teaching of Islamic art in that department. I did do some object sessions with some of the undergraduate students during my time at the Fitzwilliam. There's also, of course, um, the faculty um, of what was the... It's the Faculty of <coughs> Arabic and Middle Eastern Studies, um, and they do have specialists in who do research on manuscripts, for example, the Shahnameh Arme project that's led by Charles Melville. But there's nobody they sort of do manuscripts, there's nobody really dealing with sort of um, applied art, 3D art in Cambridge, and I know there, there is sort of a thought to maybe get somebody into the history of art department to, um, to do non-Western art, but at the moment there is, you know, universities, even Cambridge, are strapped for cash, and they, they haven't got the money to appoint a, a lecturer to deal with, you know, that kind of area, basically the moment, so um, yeah.
14: Moira, you had a question. Yeah. Um, sort of, a, a of exciting is William Yes. Such an mm. exciting object. Yeah. Mm. So amazing, such a large piece of Ottoman bell is one thing, but then to have mm. this fact that it's a relic of William Morris also mm. gives it another dimension. And maybe one of the big things, mean, you sort of feel the weight of the sort of colonial background a bit heavily, but actually the experience mm. But the, the offer that of the British collection of Alamogar had is the British reception of mm-hmm. Middle Eastern culture, or material culture in the 19th century. William Morris is such a great case study, that surely we, we've got one of his conflicts here. But we, yeah. we know that there's more in Loxley. And his, his Kelb's got a house and so yeah. on, his property. But really, if there were to be a mini network sort of
6: yeah well i mean i I can't tell you how excited i nearly fell off my chair on the first day when i found out that we had the textile collection because that's surely of sort of international importance um at um birmingham and um i totally agree that william morris is an excellent kind of way into islamic art and it's a way of you know of, of sort of explaining why we have this islamic art collection um i was speaking with some Young people who came into, into Birmingham Museum only a couple of weeks ago, and they, were, they sort of raised the question of, you know, well, how did this Islamic art collection get here? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the sort of connotations around the colonialism, but actually that a lot of the objects were applied, were, were, were purchased for a specific purpose um, as, you know, a, amazing exemplars of, you know, beautiful art. So they were
14: going to serve British designs? So yeah, it's exactly. Not exactly. Another
10: question? I was just going to add that I think one of the really wonderful things about collections in the UK uh, is the fact that there is this history that's that has been documented uh, in some way or another. I mean, coming from the states, where that there's more of a distance, and, and and if somebody came and asked, "How did this object get there?" There, there often are connections too. But I've found uh, in comparing, working in collections there and here, that this the connections here really do provide. Uh, really wonderful stories, which uh, Rebecca has already done a great job putting together. And I think that is a great way in. Um, but also, part, it adds to the history of the object, too, which which its meaning is, is there, including those layers that come later.
4: Thank you. That's great. Could I ask my question
3: for the future curators team, um, which is just to ask you to say a bit more about how you identified the areas that you have Hired um, trainee curators in, um, and you, so you already have regional partners that you what, that knew you, you you were going to work with on this project, or um, yeah, um, and so, so it came from them rather than from the British Museum. Seems- yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. So um, the program we were thinking about back in early two thousand and ten, um, and as part of that, we approached a number of partners, you know, quite broadly, and talked about different specialist areas um, that they felt um, weren't represented within their curatorial team or was represented but was um, a huge responsibility for somebody who had um, a massive collection under their remit so um, was was a part of what they were responsible for and so we we had lots of conversations about what collections, and, and the list was long, as you can imagine, um, at a number of the different institutions that we worked with. Um, but then it came down to, of course, the the individuals, because it's a, it's a traineeship. Um, we need to make sure that the, the trainees are supported and that the right person is is doing that within each institution. But then also at the British Museum, you know, and making <coughs> sure that it's the right person within our curatorial departments. So it was quite was an alchemy almost to try and get all of those elements to work Um, but ultimately uh, you know our priority of course was the particular curatorial you know expertise you know that specialist subject that we could address and support in 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 a small way of course but you know I think in quite significant in terms of impact with somebody giving a year of their time within those collection areas.
3: So it's been and would you ever consider repeating a traineeship or because it well, seems like you've done yeah. different, different sort of departments yeah, with different expertise
8: in each year. Yeah, saw Oceania was an area that was in huge demand. I mean, world cultural collections, you know, it's, it's, it's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the oceanic collections um, in a number of different institutions um, are very strong, um, but there isn't a curator that has specialist expertise in that area. So, the, you know, it's just... They're doing the best, and, and they're doing a brilliant, brilliant job. But I think it's just that level of engagement with that collection and being able to, again, like I said, realise that potential um, was, you know, maybe lacking. And so it's that that was something that we've been responsive to. And I think also something that we'd be looking to for the next round is numismatics, coins and medals. Again, is a is is in most collections across the UK, and yet they, you know often there isn't a curator responsible. So it. There's I think we could have repeated quite a few yeah. of the different areas, but we were also keen to kind of have a have a good spread and see how we could in terms of addressing different collections needs, kind of make that as broad as possible.
3: And it's a three year programme or Yeah, well are, it's were, were it's actually it, Yeah, it
8: runs over um almost four years because it's eighteen months each traineeship and there is a slight over overlap, but you know, they, we try to run them as, as separately as possible because of course it's you know it's a be five people, but we, you know, we put a lot of effort into those five individuals, Um so it's it's a quite a lot of work for us. So yeah, so <laughs> almost, Do you Is there any possibility
3: of it or a bit continuing? Yeah, term? You,
8: yeah. I mean, we'd we'd love to, and we need to we need to make sure that you know we are We're ticking all of the HLF boxes in regards to what we're offering as part of the programme, and and I think that's ultimately what will be the factor Mm -hmm. in whether it continues. So uh, we hope so, um, but uh, that decision isn't in our heads, unfortunately, in that regard. But otherwise...
0: Yes, please. (laughs) Hi, I'm Norma Pearson. I'm one of the development officers in the London team for HLF. Uh, Skills for the Future is a programme that is now opening under our new strategic framework. So if you think you'd like to do something similar, not to steal the BM's (laughs) idea, uh, but um, do have a look on our website. It is called Skills for the Future, and we are open for approaches under that scheme. And if you are interested, do make sure you put in what we're now calling a project inquiry form. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the submission date for that oh, programme.
8: I know. Oh well, so there's an expression of interest um, as well as soon as possible so that we yes. can get some feedback. Yes. And then the first round of the application is the end of January. Yeah. Right.
0: I, I summer of January, summer of yeah. February, yeah. yeah. So do get your go straight onto the website at lunchtime <laughs> and, <laughs> and get your we're now calling them a project inquiry form. Yeah. And just on that point about not repeating, HLF won't fund projects that repeat existing work. Thank you very much.
3: Are there any other questions or comments on the Future Curators programme? Which seems like an excellent <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so my question for Brighton is um, if you could say a bit more about how you were able to find funds to collect contemporary art. And now, obviously, you have to rotate your gallery displays, what your strategy is for funding funding to continue to collect contemporary art from your art.
10: Um, (coughs) We had um, a successful bid to the art fund, um, um, but it was also much funded by money from the James Green Charitable Trust, which is um, quite a unique position for a, a regional museum and that we have a, a yearly kind of bequest, which means there's um, kind of money available for match funding. But also we had Renaissance funding and it was a combination of different sources. And um, because we were part of the Stories of the World the Cultural Olympiad programme um, kind of raised the pri- profile for, um, for, you know, um, being able to get successful successful bids so um yeah just a comp- combination of, of different factors which um so so yeah luckily we've we've still got this um uh support from the james green charitable trust which we uh, again will hopefully continue to use in that kind of match funding sort of way
3: and how will you identify what you collect i mean have you you've developed a collecting strategy for contemporary art from iran
10: um I think it will still have to, if we, um, I mean, now we really need to, in order to justify it to our um, um, funders and acquisitions team, we have to um, generally collect material which will go on display rather than into the store. Um, So it will broadly fit within the the display theme, Um, either kind of exploring that theme of um, calligraphy or... I'm um, looking at work which um, explores the a bridge between traditional and modern practice, um, but quite interested in um, yo- younger artists. And, and um, kind of from a budget point of view, where it, it's more realistic, we can't really afford the, the most expensive art,
3: artists. Yes, because we know that art market is taking <laughs> off, so that's becoming unaffordable for <laughs> us. Um, I wondered if Neda could say, um, when I visited the gallery, uh, Harriet told me that you were, your group was very adamant not to collect, well in, in terms of the selection of artworks to collect, you were very clear that you didn't want to have something that, was, that seemed very traditional um, and looked very Islamic. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about why.
11: Uh, yes, the, grou- yeah, the group uh, like, was an agreement that we shouldn't... Uh, it's better not to display the pieces that, uh, have, that get the chance to be displayed in Iran because like um, we don't have many contemporary galleries for like contemporary artists uh but there are many institutions that support the religious type of art or like traditional art they have they are they have plenty of space to be shown in Iran and um obviously they can be displayed in other countries as well but like some pieces Mm, like the work by uh, Nader Davudi, it was something that mm, wouldn't get the chance to be displayed in Iran, and it was a, an opportunity for the artist um, to be like displayed, to be seen to the world. And um, it's the same for many other artists, young artists in Iran, that they um, actually because of this censorship, there are plenty of artworks that are not. Mm, allowed to be displayed in Iran. So we kind of try to support those artists and try to display their work, yeah, like in the rest of the world. Thank you.
3: I also thought it was interesting that you didn't want to, that you were very distinct about the culture that you were identifying to represent in your gallery. And, um, and I wondered whether that comes out of the sort of world <coughs> art, maybe ethnography training, which is not to sort of see cultures as a kind of en masse, um, but actually to be very distinctive about what you're talking about. And I wonder whether it was possible, that gallery would have been possible if it had been curated by your decorative arts curators, for example.
10: Um, I think it would have... I think it might, I th- I'm sure it would have still been possible, but maybe it would have looked different. I mean, the decorative art curator was um, really... Um, um, keen or really delighted that that there was a space in the museum to show the, the tiles. She was really pleased. So, um, uh, but what was the other question?
3: Well, it was whether you had distinct. You, you'd been very sort of specific yeah. and distinct about taking Iran. Yeah, as, as opposed your,
10: to more generally. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's um, uh, in part driven by the, the collections because there's never been a, a lot um, in common with many other. Regional museums. There isn't. There's never been an Islamic um, post, and so the collection does have, hasn't been really developed. And a lot of we've got material from you know all across the world, we're in countries where um, uh, Islam is the dominant religion, um, but it's rarely um, the case that there's enough material there to generate something that would really reflect that culture. And so that's why um, we focused on Iran because we just happened to have um, a few kind of star items f- from there um, so that that really informed informed the decision yeah.
3: Are there any questions?
12: One yeah, question. I, I just wanted to ask if, if the story of the world context made the curatorial process different in um, other words it's rather, it wasn't so maybe not so much the creator. Yeah. as young people
10: yeah. who led that mm. yeah it did um, uh, it was very different to, to how, we would, or how we've would, how worked in the past um, the idea was to young people were co-curating um, the exhibits but I would say that I don't think we went that far um, due to time scales and um, uh, the complexities of trying to achieve that um, However, I kind of moved to, towards kind of co-interpretation as opposed to co-curation. I think it's, um, uh, that's why we kind of got um, um, people's responses to... Um, young people's responses to objects from, from their kind of personal perspective and, and experience. And, um, but also that was mainly generated by evaluation we did previously. Um, which wanted um, the kind of first-person voices and, and much more of a kind of dialogue than a, a singular narrative. So, um, uh, yeah, it was um, quite different from before. Felicia had
5: a question. Yeah, um, just to say how what a wonderful choice of works you've got in oh, that, in that, yeah. that g- gallery. And um, particularly nice to see the Southwark to Ravkans in the same series that yeah. we have one, which is Down in the Light like, from the, the Middle East. And I was just... Thinking about ways in which we could perhaps collaborate um, mm. on on this, and also thinking about how what you're doing is um is very very similar to what LACMA is doing. So I don't you know Linda Comaroff, <coughs> but you know she she is buying works um, absolutely to go straight into the gallery. So thinking about the gallery and then the works that um, that 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 go into into that, and and you know there it, I know budgets are tight for absolutely every everybody but you know we we collect in a sort of different way is that we try and put things in our gallery but we have very little space but we have lots of works you know in our reserves and it may be that in in the future that you know we could we would lend you if you if you wanted to borrow things you know particularly when you've got to to do rotations or you know so i I feel sure it'd be really nice to work with you great we've (laughs) already
12: got one outcome (laughs) (laughs) and Tim has a question or comment. comment Um, which is that uh, you know, we, I, when I first came to the VNA, and I'm the senior curator from the Middle Eastern section. The, um, the, the Michael Snowden, who's, one of, uh, who's now retired, but he was one of our eminent curators, was creating the architecture gallery, which is on uh, which as it is now. And um, so that was ten years ago, and uh, he he came and told me that um, he he'd allotted one meter of wall space. That's a width of a meter. To the Islamic world, and I read. <laughs> I, reeled, I reeled. because, to some extent, even China, you could, there are, there are s- similar things about buildings over a very, very long periods. This does not exist in the Middle East, um, which is the area that he was giving me. Uh, he, he wanted me to cover, and um, you know the, the difference between buildings in Morocco and buildings in Iran is absolute in terms of their, their structural character. Um, so I did, my reaction was to do something that was uh, similar to you, in the sense that uh, because Mariam was also working with me, and she's a specialist on the Western Islamic world, and the Western Islamic world is very important in the v collections, we actually did a meter on one, part, you know, one particular type of um, uh, architecture that happens to be in the Islamic world. And so I, I think it. I mean, I think it made that particular part of the um, uh, ex- of the gallery much more coherent and actually told you something, um, as opposed to a grotesque generalisation. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you know, and it's also very liberating, because if you have if you're trapped within a paradigm of the Islamic art of the Middle East as we are, um, it's uh, it's actually great to actually be able to do something. That refers to a real place, which has a character. Which, if it was in Europe, would be given the same, um, the the, the full status. And that's really what the problem was. That the the, the paradigm that had been used to create this the architecture gallery, was that you had, um, you know, Gothic and Baroque, and then the equivalent was Islamic and Chinese. Mm. All of it. It was awful. (laughs) Um, What we have to with. Helen, Mm -hmm. would you
14: like to? So Helen may as well sort of work at Brighton Museum. And just to, to, to throw into the mix the fact that we did a lot of extensive um, baseline evaluation work with visitors and young people. And they also identified that cultural specificity in terms of the new gallery was really important. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting thinking that's also sort of coming from visitors and, and users yeah. potential and current. Yeah. I actually had a question for Catherine. one from visitors. I wanted to know, if, I don't know
4: if they categorize them feedback, but was there any differences between um, from or Asian group, uh, to Yes, there was, and actually that will be covered later yeah. on this yeah. afternoon. I, so yeah, yeah, this afternoon. Yeah.
3: I just wondered, could I just ask um, for a show of hands from regional museums who are actively collecting contemporary art?
14: And what are you collecting? <laughs> Would anyone like to go on to? I can... I can um, I think Sarah yeah. from the Art Fund will cover part of what we're doing this afternoon. But we are collecting, um, with um, generous support from the Art Fund, um, works by artists from um, the Middle East, China, and West and South Africa. And we've chosen those areas to um, make links with the historic collections in Bristol museums, but also to communities in our city. And so um, we we haven't got very many works of art. I mean, we we were given a million pounds by the Art band which is fantastic. But you know, you can spend that quite fast <laughs> in the contemporary art world. But um, so um, we have works um, by artists from Pakistan, Lebanon, Morocco, and so on. Um, and uh, we have an exhibition that's just. So, please come and have a look at
3: that. Do you have a strategy for what you collect? I mean, does it have to relate to your existing collections, or, or is it well, very open?
14: It's a really interesting question. And over five years, we've had so many interesting discussions with um, our mentors, who are Arnold Feeney, um, which is a, a contemporary art gallery in Bristol. Um, we're also mentored by Jeremy Wilson, who used to be um, <coughs> a collections manager at Tate. Um, and Nav Hack from Arnold a curator who has recently left, he also mentored us. Um, and um, it's really interesting because we, we kind of in museums sometimes get stuck in, in the idea that, um, uh, that there is that we should stick to cultural specificity. And of course, what the contemporary art world uh, curators will tell you is. Don't look at the person because of their roots or their nationality. They are, they are a contemporary artist. So then immediately you have a, a thing whereby uh, you know we we were getting um, recommended um, a lot of Korean artists, and I was saying oh, no. We've only got ten Korean items in this collection. Why should we get work by a Korean artist? And um, they were, it was really interesting discussion. They were saying don't be narrow minded. <coughs> you know. Uh, Artists are, are, are international. You know, these artists may be they may be born in Korea, but they live in Manhattan or they live in Paris or, or whatever. So um, it's really really been an interesting um, process. You, so which museum are you?
3: Yeah,
13: I'm Martin Ellis from Birmingham Museum. I, I feel particularly blessed that Birmingham Museum right, with Josephine and Rebecca uh, joining us. You've got a um, showing here as well. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, we we, we also are part of the Art Fund International Programme uh, working with the ICON Museum in the same way that Bristol worked with John Athene as mentors, uh, but we're collecting in partnership with uh, Walsall uh, Museum, so it's effectively a shared collection within the West Midlands, and and we are looking internationally, we're not looking particularly at any uh, any specific geographical um, area, and so over the last Six years, we've been collecting uh, material from from China, from Russia, from India, from Germany. Um, it's 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 very much seen as being part of our contemporary collection, um, and building on another brilliant uh, scheme that we were part of, um, supported through the Contemporary Arts Society a Special Collection Scheme, uh, which um, enabled us to build very strong collections of contemporary British. Um, painting and and also network what' collecting across the collection, so um, looking increasingly at at, at, at global collecting uh, from Australia as well, uh, not part of the art fund international but um, uh, a piece by martin jagamara which uh, which sits within the the, the, the world cultures yeah. collection i suppose um, so it's, yes, I mean we are active, we're not as active as we would like to be, and we take advantage, and it's important to take advantage of, of, uh, of, of, of the schemes that are running. Um, but, you know, we see collecting and we see collecting contemporary work as being a fundamental activity. Um, so that,
12: yeah, yeah. <coughs>